Psalm 119, I know we already read that in the scripture reading, but we're going to be um, looking at verses 169 through 176 this morning. Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible. Go ahead and turn there if you will. And while you are, I do want to say a special welcome uh, to Brother Larry and Miss Pam Noland who are here today. This is Corey's parents who we know we've been praying for who serve as missionaries over on the Alaska side of Canada uh, for many years. And so well, I told Brother Larry, I said, listen, um, we love Corey and Shelly Noland. Uh, they are a gift and we are benefiting from the fruit of your labors in raising a godly man who loves his wife and, and serves his family and his church family. So thank you guys for all your hard work and welcome to Matt and Anna as well who are now Floridians, right? Welcome to Florida. Uh, we're all that they say we are. Um, so, no. <laughs> I also want to say a special welcome. We've got special joy in our house this week uh, because Nanny and Pop Pop are here. My wife's parents from Memphis. Uh, and I say that twofold. One, because our grandkids are over the moon, as always, when their grandparents come. But two, if I, if I could show you two people that, in my opinion, epitomize what we're talking about in this joy series, it would be Bill and Denny Wilkes. Uh, they're two of the happiest people in the Lord that I've ever met in my entire life. In fact, this entire series was born, he doesn't know this, out of a conversation I had with my father-in-law about a year or so back. And so thank you guys again for all the work you do. And uh, I'm thankful for for uh, in-laws who love King Jesus and serve him. Uh, so, amen. All right, now let's get to business, shall we? Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, Psalm 119, verses 169 to 176, as we look at the pursuit of joy this morning. The Bible says, Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips shall utter praise for you. Teach me your statutes. My tongue shall speak of your word for all your commandments are righteousness. Let your hand become my help for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and it shall praise you and let your judgments help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, we come again to this, your holy word. We long that you should teach us your ways, that we should open our mouths to Declare your praises as it is written that our tongue shall speak of your word. Lord, we know this is only possible with the delight that you tend, intend, Father, if by your spirit you bless this word to our hearts. So as we turn now to your word, we pray that you would enlighten our minds by that same spirit that we might see in these pages the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by gazing at him, we might be changed into that same image from glory to glory. It's by the spirit of the Lord and in the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So our Sunday school class started um, a look at the book of Genesis this morning. And in Genesis chapter 2, as I was rereading this this week, we have a very brief account of the creation of Adam and Eve. 
And, and if we were honest, we, we kind of wish it was more, don't we? We're forced kind of to take what the Lord has given us. We long to know matters like what was life like before the curse? Where exactly was Eden? And of course, the great theological question that presses on every mind, did Adam have a belly button, right? <laughs> Think about it. Inquiring minds want to know. But we are simply not told the answer to these things. Of all the things that could have been recorded for us of that life in paradise, of what Adam or Eve may have said, we're given only one single sentence, one single solitary statement uttered by a sinless human being in the whole account of Scripture. What was that one statement that summarizes for us life at the time before the fall? It was, in fact, an utterance of exuberant praise, adoration, appreciation, and celebration spoken by the man to and about his bride. We find it in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, where he says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Do not... Imagine for a minute that this single line is of little importance. Uh, just as the previous verse explains for all times uh, exactly what marriage is, namely the union of one flesh between a man and a woman, so that one statement of Adam describes the affection and the appreciation that is to characterize all joyful marriage. It's, it's that love that's communicated, carried, fostered, and protected throughout the Bible. And the way that it's protected, carried, fostered, and communicated is primarily by words. It's by speech. We see this all throughout the scriptures that words, that speech, are the primary means of communication between people and of love. The crown and reward of the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31 is that her children rise up and call her blessed, and her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Verses 28 and 29. What does the Song of Solomon teach us about God's own celebration of marital romance, passion, the understanding of true love? And what is the Song of Solomon but a book of affectionate, loving speech? In the Bible, love is conveyed primarily by speech between men and women, parents and children, friends, even love for enemies. Now you'll object. You'll say, wait a minute, surely love must always be expressed in deeds. I mean, the greatest love that our God has given us is in deed. And, and true enough, yes. But all the other instruments of love, gifts, and deeds are of little to no value if there is not the communication, interpretation, the affection, appreciation, and celebration expressed in words. I mean, I mean the whole world knows that this is true, don't they? Ask any married couple how important the need for affectionate communication is. We joke about this, but you've heard of the man who once said, Honey, I told you I loved you when I married you. If I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. No, listen, there are, are plenty of men who, if asked, specifically men, who would say that of course they love their wives. Of course they love their children. Why? Look at all that they do. 
They put a roof over their heads, food on their table, clothing on their backs. And no doubt they really do love them. Of course, I love you. I go to work every day for you. Look at that all that I've given to you. However, the family will be less sure because all that work will mean little without words of joy, of affection, and devotion. Same is true with children. Children long for their parents' love. And all that you do is essential as a parent, but listen, all the self-sacrifice, it will mean so little to them unless they know by your words that they are loved, cherished, and prized by their parents. That their parents think the world of them. By this, to know this, they must have your speech. Listen, I genuinely believe that speech is the primary carrier and interpreter of human love. It is speech that creates, that protects, that fosters and deepens that love. And on the other hand, I believe it's speech or the lack of right speaking that are the primary things that destroy any relationship. You may say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But I tell you, that is nothing but the purest of nonsense, bravely trying to cover up hurt and sorrow. Because bones are fixed easily enough, but the damage that words do or the damage of lack of an absence of words does, it's often the most painful in a person's life. It's a damage that sometimes is never repaired. Now listen, if you're a Christian, you should not be surprised that speaking words of affection as the primary way of maintaining a relationship of love and true happiness because this is the way of God and his relationship to us. We are in a series this summer on seeking the joy of the Lord. And this week we'll be considering the Bible and prayer as the primary means given for us to pursue joy. And you'll notice something about both of those topics. They are, of course, verbal. So often, God's God's grace, as I was considering this week, I just couldn't get this out of my mind. How many times in my life have I experienced this? That that God's grace towards us is still the same, and yet even in my relationship with the Lord, I feel like there's this distance between us. Have you ever felt that way? I know His grace is still the same, but there's still distance. We find in ourselves little fire and little joy. I mean, the same thing happens to people who are married for a certain period of time, which is one of the reasons I introduced the subject the way I did. Let's be honest, folks. We can grow tired of anything. We can come to take absolutely anything for granted. You know it as just as well as I do. We can even take for granted the fact that you and I were headed for hell, but God intervened, and now we're children of God, heirs of eternal joy. We certainly can take that for granted. That fact, which was at times deeply moving to us in the past, is now something we rarely even think about except for Sundays. So the question, of course, is, how then are we to keep this fire, this love, this delight alive in our hearts? What do you do when that begins to fade? Well, friends, the primary means of grace in the Bible is speech. 
words are necessary for this love and joy to remain powerful forces in our lives. Listen, we will not enjoy the Lord nor to delight to know him if we're not speaking to God and he is not speaking to us. We won't. In fact, the capacity to use and understand words is one of the main things that separates you from the beast. Uh, more than anything else, it comes very near to what it means to be made in the image of God. How we as human beings can instantly take a thought, form it into words, speak those words in the ears, minds, and hearts of another and be instantly understood. I mean, God does the same to us, doesn't he? He can change us and draw us and he does so by his word. God communicates to us love, anger, patience, loving kindness, greatness, and so forth. And he does so primarily with words. Not only with words, certainly God, God created us. That was a physical act. Jesus died for us. That was a physical act. Yes, and yet without words, those things would never be communicated to us, would, would mean nothing to us. And, and even there, it's interesting how essential words are. For yes, in creation, it's a physical act. But how did God make the world? He spoke it, didn't he? Amen. And he redeemed us through Jesus who was the word incarnate. I mean, what is the gospel but not words? How is it that we became a Christian? The Bible says that God called us. When we are Christians, how are we to live in communion with God? Deepen that love and strengthen that joy in our fellowship with him. It is by words, his to us in the Holy Scriptures and ours to him in prayer. Deeper, truer happiness with God through speech. And so, so what I want to do this morning is I want to cover this matter briefly in the order I've given to you. This may be the simplest of outlines you've ever had at First Baptist Church of Gray Gables. I want to look at scripture as the pursuit of joy and prayer as the pursuit of joy. And honestly, I really believe this is just a refresher course for you. I'm sure I'm not going to tell you anything today that you don't already know, except that this is the most important thing, friends, to pursue our joy. We need to devote ourselves to words. First, we'll look at the scripture as a pursuit of joy. The scripture as a pursuit of joy. It's no wonder that the longest chapter in all of the Bible is all about God's word to us. You'll notice every verse in the passage we just read, every verse has some reference to the word of the living God. Starting with verse 169 and following, you read about your word, about your word again, your statutes, your commandments, your precepts, your law, and your judgments, and then your commandments again. Whole psalm is this way. It is a skillfully composed open praise of the word of God. And here in this section particularly, we're learning about what God's word does for us, does to us. What does his word do? Well, in verse 169, we see that it gives us understanding. It gives us deliverance further down. It goes on to say next, for salvation, it brings praise to our lips and calls forth words from our tongues. His word, therefore, is our choice, our delight, and our help. And so the psalm ends, we will not forget your commandments. Yet preserving and reclaiming our joy in the Lord, friends, it does take work. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. He said, we are but fellow workers for your joy. 
I mean, as a minister of the word, he says, I'm working with you for your joy. That means that there's work involved, friends, because we must not neglect or forget his words. But surely the psalm reminds us this is a very delightful work. At least I can say this. The more we do it, the more delightful it is. I want you to picture a scenario with me. Imagine you go see a friend of yours that was once very, very healthy, but now is faint with hunger. And there he languishes on the couch. He's got no energy. He's exhausted. He tells you that he just doesn't have any energy like he used to. And you look at this poor, frail thing and you think, well, the answer is obvious. You need food, man. Oh no, he says, it's so hard for me now to get up and go to the store, to push that heavy cart, to load and unload the groceries, to prepare something to eat day after day. I need energy to get the food and I don't have energy. Look, you say impatiently, the, the reason you don't have any energy is because you're not eating. If you ate food regularly, it would not be so hard every time to get the food, to cook it and so forth. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get you a meal today so that you can eat it, gain a little strength for yourself, and then you've got to arouse yourself. You have to get yourself some food, prepare it, and eat it. Or, friend, you're going to kill yourself from laziness. Now, can you imagine having that conversation with someone who just has no strength to eat? Friends, that's the same conversation I have with people who are weak spiritually. They languish because they can't seem to do the most basic things anymore. They've got no joy, they've got no desire or no energy in the Lord. And so, okay, friend, here's what I'll do. I'll bring you a prepared meal once or twice a week and hope this is going to sustain you for now. But what's going to happen if you don't feed yourself? What's going to happen if you don't feed those in your home? That's the Bible's approach to this matter. Listen to this, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 46 through 47. I love this text. God says, he says, set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of his law. Look at verse 47. For it is not a futile thing for you because it is your life. It is your life. This is how you gain life to begin with. This is how you sustain life. It's the Bible. The Bible says we've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. Not only do we gain it this way, but we go on living it this way. Matthew 4, 4, something we know quite well, don't we? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Our physical life has been created and upheld by the word of his power, just as our spiritual life is sustained by his word. So in the psalm we read earlier, all throughout the psalm, it says wonderful things like, I'll delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. That's found in verse 16. In verse 97, it says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 111 says, your testimonies I've taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. This is the way that God feeds you joy. If you, if you come to me and you say, I have no joy, how can I read the Bible if I have no joy? Well, friends, where else are you going to get it? 
There is no true joy without faith. As Paul put it in Romans 15, 13, he says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Or as Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 25, he says, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. Where the word abounds with faith, hearts are filled with joy. John Piper recounts the story of Bill Nee, the great English reformer born in 1495. And he tells the story of his conversion, how someone gave him a Bible. And he says uh, he opened it and picked up reading 1 Timothy chapter 1. It is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief and principal. This one sentence through God's instruction and inward working, which I did not then perceive, did so exhilarate my heart, being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair, that immediately I felt a marvelous comfort and quietness, insomuch that my bruised bones leaped for joy. After this, the scriptures became, began to be more pleasant to me than the honey or the honeycomb. Proverbs 13 says, happy, or 3 verse 13 says, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. It is the effect of the words of Christ to give us joy. So friends, it's very simple equation here. If you're lacking in joy, if you're lacking in the desire, if you're languishing on the couch of life, then I tell you, to pursue maximum joy in the word of our God. Now, we must go from scripture, God's word to us, to our word to God. Prayer as a pursuit of joy. Prayer as the pursuit to joy. Now, although this psalm is primarily about the word of God, it surely is interesting, isn't it, how often his words to us are said to bring forth words to him in response. That's probably not surprising to you as you read God's word yourself, as you meditate on it, but you'll know how these words by the Spirit continually bring forth prayers, thanksgivings, praises, and supplications. This is the way it's supposed to be. Here it is in, in Psalm 119. We have in the beginning a prayer. First to understand what God says. Look at verse 169. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. That's a good prayer at any beginning of reading God's word. In fact, let me encourage you, pray verse 169 of Psalm 119 before you read your word this week. Then verse 170, what does he say? Let my supplication come before you. Remember what supplication means. It means begging or asking, a word that of course refers to prayer. And then in 171, he says, my lips shall utter praise for you teach me your statutes. My lips shall utter you praise. Why? Because of your word. Verse 172, the next verse says, My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. And then in verse 175, it says, Let my soul live, and it shall praise you. Of course, the whole psalm here is written as a prayer. The whole psalm is actually a joyful prayer to God in response to his word. I mean, you get the point, right? Prayer in response to God's word for this joy is essential because when all is said and done, only God can give you this joy in the Lord. 
When I say it, seek it through the scripture, when I tell you to pursue joy through scripture and prayer, I don't mean you do it like a machine, right? That you put these things in and then joy just pops right out. I mean, these are the things by which you seek the Lord who gives you joy. By nature, we are not inclined to be satisfied with the beauty of God in this way. And that is why God must be sought. I mean, by nature, frankly, we get much more pleasure from God's gifts than we get from God himself, don't we? And as I've said many times in this series, the essence of sin is desiring anything more than God. That is the root that we must sever every day. Sever it with a superior pleasure. And here again, we find that our greatest joy requires much work. A very worthwhile work, but so it is with the scripture and prayer. And yet, we find the greatest joy must be sought through specifically the work of prayer. Now, prayer's not always work, I know. If you would sit here and say, well, prayer's not work for me, well, congratulations with you and your righteousness. I'm thankful for that, all right? Uh, Hallelujah. Um, Guard against that self-righteousness. But I'll tell you, the finest of Christians have admitted often enough prayer is hard work. And so for your encouragement, what I've done this week is I've selected a testimony from one of the godliest men of each century over the last several centuries going back, okay? Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. That ought to be an encouragement to you. I'm encouraged by that. Century before, the great Alexander White, preacher of the Church of Scotland, wrote, and no, I'm not saying it in a Scottish accent, there is nothing we are so bad at in all our days as prayers. Century before, John Newton, author of the song Amazing Grace, Anglican minister, said this. He said, I find in my own case the principal cause of my leanness and unfruitfulness is owing to an unaccountable backwardness to pray. I can write or read or converse or hear with a ready will. But prayer is more spiritual and inward than any of these. And the more spiritual any duty is, the more my carnal heart is apt to draw aside from it. In the 1600s, a godly Puritan father, Thomas Shepard of Church of New England, wrote this. He said, there are times in my life when I would rather die than pray. The celebrated English reformer, Richard Hooker, in the 1500s wrote, let the holiest and best thing we do be considered. We are never better affected unto God than when we pray. Yet when we pray, how are our affections many times distracted? How little reverence do we show to the grand majesty of that God unto whom we speak? How little remorse of our own miseries? How little taste of the sweet influence of his tender mercy do we feel? Are we not as unwilling many times to begin and as glad to make an end? As if God is saying, call upon me has set us a very burdensome task? What's wrong with us, he asks. I could really go back many centuries to... Uh, St. Augustine, who in prayer to God very honestly admits, I was astonished that although I now loved you, I did not persist in enjoyment of my God. Your beauty drew me to you, but soon I was dragged away from you by my own weight and in dismay. I plunged again into the things of this world, as though I had sensed the fragrance of the fair, but was not yet able to eat it. So, if prayer's hard work for you, friends... You're not alone. Day by day, Augustine goes on to say, prayer became a burden. 
here again in, in the Christian life, as with Scripture, we've got this terrible tension, don't we, between the greatness of prayer and our knowledge of how great it actually is that the, that the God of the universe, the God who's so powerful that he spoke the entire galaxies into existence by the word of his power, desires for us, minute, frail, once enemies of him, sinful people actually call upon his name and he hears us. We, we know this and yet there's this great tension between the greatness of this act and our tendency to despise it. The importance of our praying and our inclination to ignore it. But who is going to save us from this body of death? See, soon in our invitation this morning, we're going to sing about the sweet hour of prayer. And I, I assume we'll have a bit of discomfort with that because it's been a long time since we've had an hour of prayer. I know from experience, as do you, how many mornings I'm not even tempted to seek God for 10 minutes because my faith feels so weak. Friends, that's ridiculous. It's like not going to the doctor because you're too sick. It makes about as much sense. We must go to God who strengthens weak hearts and weak faiths. Psalm 43, we are to say, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. If he is in our exceeding joy when we approach the altar, here's the beauty. See, you would expect me to finish that sentence by saying, well, don't even bother to go. But friends, if he isn't our exceeding joy when we approach the altar, the beauty of the Christian life is we find that he is by the time we leave the altar. By this means, God provides for our joy and he delights in doing so. He puts it this way in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 37 and 38. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock. So shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. This is God's desire and delight. He says, I want them to ask, and I will give them. Einstein once said that God was far too great to concern himself for a little creature like him. He was running this grand universe for which Einstein had a tremendous appreciation for. But God is far greater than anything Einstein once thought. For not only does he support the greatest reaches of the universe, but he still cares personally, deeply, and tenderly about your needs. Especially of his chosen children. Of course, it's by prayer that a special view of God and his relationship to us is fostered. Words that are appropriate according to God's appointment to convey the blessings that God designs to give. To bring the praises that are fitting for such a glorious God. Things, these things must, must make it to a real level of our daily life. Which is why God has made such a great place for prayer in the Christian life. This is why we should love to pray. Because it is the link that binds us to God in the most personal, immediate, and general way as a child to their father. We can say it with so much weakness. I know, believe me. I want to conclude now with just a thought from the book we've been looking through, Desiring God, Being a Joy Seeker. He writes this. He says, Being a joy seeker is a liberating and devastating doctrine. It teaches that the value of God shines more brightly in the soul that finds deepest satisfaction in him. 
Therefore, it is liberating because it endorse, endorses our inborn desire for joy. What is God required of us in this book? He's required maximum joy. And that's a liberating doctrine, he says. But it's also devastating because it reveals that no one desires God with the passion that he demands or is due. Why? Because my indwelling sin stands in the way of my full satisfaction of God. It opposes and perverts my pursuit of God. It opposes by making other things look more desirable than God. And it perverts by making me think that I'm pursuing joy in God when in fact I'm simply in love with his gifts. Friends, many of us adults in this, congregations have been, in this congregation have been Christians for probably some time now. I'm looking around, I'm seeing faces of people who have been Christians for a while. And listen, as we were reminded, there's this great danger in the Christian life, especially in that time. It's at this time when we've been a Christian for a while where we begin to grow comfortable in the routine of Christian living. In fact, in many cases, even without being aware of the fact, people who have grown comfortable fall prey to a temptation to live a Christian life that is more about the repetition of habit than it is a daily active dependence upon the Lord. I mean, we're still very serious Christians. We still intend to serve him faithfully. But truth be told, from time to time, we shudder at how little true engagement there is between the Lord and our souls. If we're being honest with ourselves, that's, that's the truth. We shudder at the fact how little we look to heaven. We shudder at the fact how little we seem genuinely to know the joy of a Lord which he alone can supply. I mean, we know that it's real. But now we find too much principle and very little person in our walk with God. I'm not saying that young Christians don't face them temptation. They certainly do. But I think there's a peculiar danger for those who have walked with the Lord for some time. When the routine of life has become well established. When convictions have become settled. And we have to be called back to our relationship of words. Back to an active deepening of our joy in the Lord. A real communion of faith, hope, and love in Him. If from the depth of our souls. Words are the primary means for creating, preserving, and deepening our relationships, including our relationship with God. So his to us in scripture and ours to him in prayer, may they increase. Languish on your couch of life no longer. Let's arise and go to Jesus. We, ministers of the word, are workers with you and for your joy. And friends, it's no surprised that this text and this topic falls on July 4th. I've had many people come to me even today and say, we're praying for revival of America. You want to see a revival in America? You want to see a revival in the United States? Here's what you do. God's people get to his words. Amen. You get to his word to you and you start with your words to him. You'll see a revival. Would you stand as we close together? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have appointed us to joy. That you have appointed a means to joy. And a means that is so delightful. 
May the words of Psalm 119, Father, may they characterize our lives more and more every day. Father, I, I pray specifically for those who are just in, in, in the middle of age, who find themselves more in the realm of the principal and not of the personal. I pray that through this work and through this word, yours to us and ours in response to you, that you would rekindle the hearts of these people and reignite a flame. That we should no longer be energyless, lifeless, languishing in our lives. We pray that you would give us again a sense of the sweetness and goodness of your word. That you would seal this message to every heart. That we would not be a people of apathy, but a people of joy. And the pursuit of that joy would be that we are people of the word and prayer. Father, thank you for these wonderful means of grace you give to us, your people. Help us now to be good stewards of them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.